church. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Last week we looked at this, uh, we were looking, we're going through Luke a uh, verse at a time. Last week we looked at this transition passage, chap, uh, verses 12 through 16. Jesus has been rejected by the religious leaders. Uh, there's not any, we talked about this idea of wine and wineskins. There's no give in their wineskin. There's no room for what God is doing through Jesus. And so they finally rejected him. He went up on a mountain. I said he went up to ask God the question, what's next? So what am I supposed to do? I've been rejected by these that you've sent me to. So what, what do you want me to do? And he comes down the mountain, and the first thing he does is he names 12 apostles. What I think happened up on the mountain, he's there all night. I think what is going on is the Father is directing Jesus to create this new wineskin, this new expectation and understanding of what it means to be the people of God. And step one is, well, let me get some guys to help you. These 12 are going to help spread this message. As we go through the rest of Luke, we'll see the this description of this wineskin and, again, what it looks like to be the people of God as Jesus uh, understands that. Uh, for us, the takeaway, we said at, at some point in our life, every one of us will be at a what's next point. Will it be a decision point? We'll be asking the Lord what's next. There may be some confusion in our life and we need some clarity. And uh, using Jesus as our example, a few takeaways. One, we said commit to praying all the way through to clarity. Jesus prayed all night. You don't have to pray all night, but you need to pray. Into, you need to pray all the way to the end. Pray all the way through from the beginning to the end, till you get a point of clarity. You have some sense of what God is saying. That's the second piece: was to listen to the Lord, trust that He wants to speak to you. For some of you, that's a bit outside of your comfort zone, and I would encourage you, if that's you, just to pray this prayer: God, give me ears to hear what You're saying to me. Just that simple. God, give me ears to hear. What you're saying to me and trust that he's going to lead you most likely down one of two paths, either the path of wisdom, which we said is like it's holy common sense. It's the way God normally works or the path of revelation. That's divine insight. That's something that's kind of a lightning bolt um, moment where you have this real sense of, all right, I'm going to move in this direction now. Both of those things are wonderful. Both wisdom and revelation are rooted in the heart of God. He's a source of both. But we're bent one way or the other. And sometimes it's difficult for us uh, if the Lord wants to speak to us in a different way. If you're a wisdom-oriented person, sometimes revelation to you can seem flighty or untrustworthy. If you're a revelation-oriented person, uh, wisdom to you can maybe seem trite, cliche, or not very spiritual. And we want to make sure that we're allowing the Lord to speak to us uh, however he wants. Uh, So now we'll pick up in verse 17 of chapter 6. Jesus came down the mountain with the twelve. And he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Jesus, for power came out from him and healed them all. So uh, your Bible may call this the Sermon on the Plain. This is the condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7. It's Jesus' most... Famous sermon. And so Luke is setting us up for that. Jesus comes partway down a mountain. Maybe he's on some level place on the mountain. He's got this huge crowd around him. So the religious leaders have rejected him. But the people are still hungry for what he's sharing. We've got Jews. That's Jerusalem and Judea. We've got Gentiles. That's Tyre and Sidon. They're coming. Jesus is continuing to execute on his uh, visions, on his mission. uh, Proclaiming good news to the poor. Setting captives free. We see Jesus is continuing to minister in the power of the Spirit. We said that before. Jesus doesn't do what he does because he's divine. 
uh, but because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that there's power coming out of him to heal. So those are things we've all seen. And now we're going to look, starting in verse 20, uh, this description of life uh, in the kingdom of God, this description of this new wineskin. This is, this is a memo, an introduction. It doesn't fill in all the blanks. It's, it's kind of a primer, a first look at what this new wineskin that Jesus is creating uh, will look like. So Jesus lifts up his eyes to his disciples and says, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So we read those things, and honestly, they don't make sense. It doesn't seem that you're blessed if you're hungry or if you're mourning. It doesn't seem like you're in bad shape if you're well-fed or if you're laughing. But this Jesus, again, paints this picture. I think what's going on here, these aren't commands. There's no action to be taken. Uh, They're not entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. He's not saying if you want to be saved, if you want to enter into a relationship with God, then you need to become poor or hungry. Entrance requirements for the kingdom have always been the same. Repentance, moving from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. And trust, making a decision to put your faith in Jesus. So turning and trusting, always what God is looking for from us. So these aren't entrance requirements. Again, I think it's, it's a picture of what this new of reality in this new wineskin. The major thing that I think Jesus is doing here is he's trying to break the connection that was prevalent in the old wineskin way of thinking. He's trying to break this connection between physical condition and spiritual condition. So he's saying blessed, that is favored by God, and he lists some people who we would not consider blessed. And then he gives woes, which is a warning. It means you're in danger from God, and he woes people who we would not considered woeable. Um, that's a word. So here's the old wineskin. The old wineskin, the conventional way of thinking, is everything is on you. The reason this has, and it, this, this is still prevalent today, the reason it hangs on is because there is some truth to it. We do reap what we sow to some degree. Our choices absolutely Matter And there are consequences to those decisions. But what had happened is the conventional wisdom had almost had fallen all the way in the direction of karma. So your spiritual condition determined your physical condition. So and and your physical condition was a reflection of your spiritual condition. Those things were tightly tied together. So if you're sick or if you're poor, then it's because of some sin in your life and God is judging you. And so if I see someone who's poor, my assumption is, well, they're a sinner. If I see someone who's sick, my assumption is, well, they deserved it. God is judging them for something that they have done. Their sinfulness has caused this suffering, these struggles in their circumstances. And then I can look at their circumstances and then make a judgment on whether or not they're in good standing with the Lord. The flip was also true. If you're healthy and wealthy, if you're successful, if you're flourishing... It's because of your own righteousness, your ability to keep the law well, and therefore God has shown favor to you. So if you look out and there's someone who's 
kind of uh, rolling through life, then the assumption is, wow, they're a really righteous person and God is blessing them because of their righteous behavior. Again, there is some truth to that. But in this old wineskin way of thinking, it had almost locked in again to this kind of karmic way of looking at the world where uh, someone's physical condition and spiritual condition were totally equivalent. And what Jesus is saying, no, not not at all. I'm actually going to say people who are poor and who are hungry and who are mourning and who are reviled and who are persecuted, they're actually blessed. And I'm going to say that people who are rich and who are well fed and who are well thought of and are happy, they're actually in danger. Doesn't make any sense. He's breaking the connection between the physical and the spiritual, turning things upside down. That's a major thing that he's doing here in these Beatitudes. Again, there's there's nothing necessarily for us to do. There's no action to be taken off of those things. Obviously, if you are in that first category, it's going to encourage you. Wow, okay. So my circumstances are terrible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God is unhappy with me or that I'm on the wrong side of him. It's a warning to people on the other side. Well, things are going really well for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that spiritually I'm okay. Just because other people think well of me doesn't mean God thinks well of me. Or just because other people are rejecting me and persecuting me, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a place for me. Just because I'm hungry now, it doesn't mean that I haven't found favor with God because he's actually at work. That's the new wineskin is God is at work. He's at work in ways that we can't see oftentimes. Sometimes, in many cases, his work won't be finally and fully completed until Jesus returns, but he is at work. So if you're poor in the kingdom of God, you're blessed, you're favored by him. Why? Because he's dealing with the cause of your poverty. If you're sick, if you're hungry, he's dealing with the causes of those things. He's making all things new. He's reversing the effects of the fall. Again, fully and finally when Jesus returns, but even now we experience some expressions of that. In our life. And so even if your circumstances are terrible, you can still consider yourself favored by God if you're in the kingdom. And even if things are going really well for you, don't get complacent. Don't assume that that means things are okay with you and the Lord. And we'll see as we look through the rest of Luke what it looks like, what God's actually looking for from us. So that's what's going on here. What does that look like for us? I would just say maybe it's a, a warning not to take, uh, not to judge too quickly. Not to base things just on externals, whether that's in your own life or someone else's. Don't assume because someone is struggling that somehow God is against them in your own life. If things are falling apart, may not be because of any sinfulness in yourself. There are times where God allows us to experience some temporary judgment to draw us back to himself. There are absolutely times where he blesses us materially because of obedience in our life. But it's not always the case. You want to make make room For God to be at work even when we can't see him. So that's, I think that's probably a decent picture of these beatitudes and these woes. One of the things I was thinking about as I was looking at that is there's also another, there's a a deeper, another level of understanding for what poor and rich means. Sometimes when you see poor in the Bible, it means people don't have any money. And sometimes this is what it means. People who recognize their need for God. Sometimes rich means people who have a lot of money. And sometimes it means people who fail to recognize their need for God. And we're going to kind of play off of this for the rest of the time this morning. So when I say poor, I don't want you just thinking bank account. I don't even want you thinking primarily bank account. I want you thinking people who are willing to live dependently upon the Lord. 
Think about the humble. Again, humble in terms of dependent. You can look in Luke 19. There's this uh, two, two stories back to back. The story of a little child coming to Jesus and then the story of a rich young man coming to Jesus. And it paints the picture of the difference between the humble and the proud. The difference between the poor and the rich. The difference between people who recognize their need for Jesus. That is a child. And one who doesn't, that is a rich young man who can take care of himself. When we say rich, I want you thinking primarily of people who choose to live independently of the Lord. Sometimes that choice is not necessarily conscious, oftentimes it is. But for people who are rich, there's this temptation to live independently of the Lord. Difficult when you're rich to recognize your need for him. So poor and rich speak to a heart condition, but that heart condition is absolutely influenced by our paycheck. Ultimately, Jesus does not care how much money anybody makes. That's not, it's not an issue. Again, that's, these aren't entrance requirements to the, to the kingdom. Jesus is not elevating poverty above wealth. That's not what's going on at all. Ultimately, what Jesus cares about is our heart. We see that from Old Testament all the way through the New. He's looking at our hearts, but we all need to recognize that our paycheck influences our heart. Here's my graph. You like that? It's pretty good. As your income increases, the temptation towards pride increases as well. As your income increases, the temptation toward pride increases as well. That's 1 Timothy 6.17. Teach those who are rich not to trust in their money. The reason Paul says to Timothy, teach them to not trust in their money is because All things being equal, naturally, the more money we have, the greater the temptation to trust in it. And if I'm trusting in it, then I'm not trusting in him. The more income I have, the greater the temptation to live independently of the Lord. Again, this is a heart condition that we're talking about. Humility versus pride. But income, paycheck, influences that heart condition. You remember this. People who are poor materially, recognize they need other people just to get through. They know, particularly you're looking at Jesus' context, people who don't even have food, they know, if I'm going to make it, somebody's got to help me. There's a, there's a recognition there that I can't live life on my own. Not a huge step if I'm used to needing other people, if I'm used to depending on other people. It's not a huge step to then say, you know what, I might need a Savior as well. I need God in my life as well. And so when Jesus preaches this good news, I'm like, yes, I recognize. I'm the sick. I need a doctor. If I'm wealthy, I'm used to taking care of myself. What do we call someone who's rich? We call them independently wealthy. They're so well off they can live independent of other people. For many of us, that's the goal. We want to be independently wealthy. I want to be able to take care of myself. And if I go day after day, week after week, month after month, taking care of myself, meeting my own needs then it's easy for me to begin to say, I'm healthy. I don't really need a doctor. And so when I hear good news, this good news of Jesus, I think, hmm, what does that have to do with me? I don't need saving from anything. Things are going pretty well for me. God is blessing me. We may even use that terminology. As our income increases, so does the temptation to trust in it, the temptation to live independently of the Lord. You can spiritualize this concept as well, and that's okay. Uh, for sure, like you can say, you know, I'm, 
I'm rich in good works. I'm rich in spiritual discipline. I'm rich in morality. And I'm tempted to trust in those things to make me right before the Lord. Absolutely, people do that. Uh, Navigating through life. I'm rich in intelligence or I'm rich in connections. I'm rich in willpower. I'm rich in whatever. Get up and go. And I'm tempted to trust in that to navigate through life versus trusting in the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we can for sure spiritualize that. And I think there's truth there. Anything, any area where we feel strong, that we feel, quote, rich in, can ab- we can absolutely be tempted to trust in that. That's natural and that's normal. It's not right, but it's natural and it's normal. And so you can spiritualize that, but I don't want us to let ourselves off the hook by not saying specifically, Jesus said rich and poor. He didn't say smart and dumb. He didn't say good looking and ugly. He didn't say hard workers and lazy. He said rich and poor. He used those labels because there is something peculiar about money that worms its way into our heart and tempts us to live independently of him, which then moves us in that, can, it, that puts us under the woes. That's where it puts us. It puts us in that category of the woes. So what we say, what I say is, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. That's, that's my solution to that. I'm not rich. And the way I define rich is like this. That's me on the right. I've lost weight. I've been fasting during Lent. And I define rich in a way that says it's people who have more than me and earn more than me. When it comes to rich and poor, I look up the ladder and assume everyone above the ladder is rich. I never look down the ladder. I only look up. I only look at people who have more than me and earn more than me. And I define them as rich. And then I put specific things around it. And I say, well, I don't have a second home. So that's what rich rich is when you have two homes. I'm never going to have one. It's the safest definition ever for me. Or I can say, well, rich is if you have, if you send your kids to private school. Because we don't. We put ours in public school. So that's rich. Or rich is if you have somebody clean your house. Because we don't do that. Anything that I don't do, I'm fine putting that in the circle. Because it doesn't affect me. But if you were to say, you know what, rich is if you go out to eat twice a week. No, it's not, because I do that, and I'm not rich. I'm going to adjust the definition so it doesn't apply to me. Why? Because in my mind, I think, well, if I was rich, then I'd have everything that I want, and I don't have everything that I want, therefore I'm not rich. Or I think, if I was rich, then I wouldn't worry about money, and I worry about money, therefore I'm not rich. I don't have these intangible feelings that I associate with being rich, therefore I'm never rich. It's a moving target. Why does it matter? Because I need to know. If my cholesterol is through the roof, I need to know because I'm headed for a heart attack. Denial is not a defense. I need to know. If I'm rich, then I need to know because woe is me. Then I need to know. As I read through the New Testament, I need to know what God says about people who are rich if that's me. I don't need to go around thinking I'm poor if he's saying, hmm, you're actually, you're not. That's why I think it matters. So here, let's see this next one. This is the globalrichlist.com. You can look at that. You can look at it right now. I don't care if you listen to me. You can type in your income and it'll tell you where you land. So what I typed in was $63,920. That's a median income in Cobb County. For a household. So a a household in Cobb County, median income, $63,920 a year. And so if you make that, 
then that puts you in the top 16 hundredths of a percent of people in the world. So there's, what, 7.3 billion people in the world. And if I make the median income in Cobb County, and we've got a list of everybody, and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Sheik, whoever, are all up there at the top, my name is 9,638,298 on the list. Way fewer people above me on the ladder than there are below me on the ladder. There's 9.6 million people above me, and there's 7.24 billion people below me. I'm rich. Just about any definition of the word. You can put in your income and see where you land and see if it makes you feel good or it makes you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to say let's, let's diagnose our hearts correctly. If I've got bad arteries, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, whatever, the best thing for me is to know that. So then I can deal with it. If I'm at risk for a heart attack, again, denial does not keep the heart attack from happening. It just makes me unprepared. And if there was something I could do, it keeps me from doing that. If I'm rich, I, I need to know. And I want to know specifically, well, what are the perils of my soul because I'm rich? What am I at risk at because I'm rich? If, there's, if it's woe is me, then I need to know what I'm being woed for. And so I have to be able to diagnose myself correctly. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or feel guilty about what you make or what you don't make. What I'm trying to say is, if you're rich, and most likely you are, it's important to know. It's like AA. My name is David and I'm rich. I've got to be able to own that. So I can then say, God, what does that put me at risk for? How is my heart vulnerable because of the fact that I'm wealthy? Even if I don't feel like I'm wealthy, how does that make, what temptations are, am I prone to? What weeds are prone to grow in the soil of my heart solely because of the fact that I'm rich? There are other weeds that may grow in the heart of someone who's poor. But which weeds are prone to grow in the heart of me because I'm rich? That's what I'm trying to get. I'm not, trying, I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not passing a bucket. I'm not going to ask you to give any money. That's all functional. Right now, the only thing we're trying to accomplish today, Jesus, there are no commands in the Beatitudes. I just want to know, which, which do I fit in? Am I blessed or am I woed? And to be honest, if I were to look at my life, I fit much more clearly into the woe category. I'm well fed. The only time I miss a meal is when I want to. Never because I have to. I'm happy. People speak well of me. And that's the category that I fit under. It doesn't mean I need to go and try to fit in the other category. It means I need to recognize, warning from God, am I okay? Where is my heart vulnerable? And what do I need to do about it? Three places where if you're wealthy, if you're rich, if you're going to be in the club with me and say, I'm rich, what is your heart at risk for? And there's more. This is just three I thought of. To trust in your wealth. We already looked at that. The more you have, the easier it is to trust. And it, I think it's Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. If you go look in your Bible, most likely money is capitalized. There's something behind that beyond paper and change. There's a spiritual reality. Money draws us in. 
All of the, many of the things God says, I'll do for you, money says, I'll do for you too. God says, I'll provide your security. Money says, I can do that. God says, I'll meet your needs. Money says, I can do that too. God says, I'll make a place for you. Money says, I can make a place for you also. I can buy your way in anywhere. Very subtle, very persistent temptation of money to say, trust me, not him. Again, Paul tells Timothy, make sure you teach the rich not to trust in money. Because the natural pull of money is to trust it. And we've got to be intentional and conscious and aware and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to trust in money. It's unreliable, is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17. You're going to put all your weight on it and it's going to fail you. Many of you experienced that a few years ago. The bottom fell out. Stock market, real estate. That's the unreliable, and you didn't do anything wrong. Not one thing did you do wrong. You didn't sin, you didn't make a bad choice. You woke up one day and you were worth half what you were the day before. Because of something we don't understand. The unreliability of wealth. Teach them who are rich not to trust in money. Recognize money says trust in me. If you're rich, no, that's going to be a temptation for you to put your weight on what you earn or what you can earn, and not on Jesus. To value wealth too highly. Love of money is the root of all kind of evil. So, wanting it, whether you feel like you have a lot or not a lot, if there's this thing in you that says, I love it, I want more of it, that was bad, I didn't do that on purpose. (laughs) I would never do anything like that on purpose. If that's your heart... You gotta recognize that. And I need to know. Loving money. Drooling over my portfolio. Whatever that looks like for you. That's gonna cause me all kinds of problems. It's gonna make me selfish. It's gonna make me callous towards the needs of others. Interesting. The more we make, and the longer we're independent, often, this is stereotype, the more callous we become to the needs of others because we forget what it was like. We forget what it's like to not be able to make it. We forget what it's like to need other people. There are absolutely people make terrible choices, for sure. But the more we make and the longer we're independent, the easier it is for us to lump everybody who's struggling in the same category and say, I figured it out. Why can't you figure it out? That's, there's a, that's the love of money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And I want to be aware of that. What specifically in me? Does the love of money create anxiety in me? Does the love of money create covetousness in me? Where I'm looking at what other people have and saying, I want that. I deserve that. Does the love of money, again, does it create an insecurity in me where I can't be satisfied with what I have? Some of us never feel rich because we think, well, if I was rich, I wouldn't want more. No, if you were content, you wouldn't want more. It's nothing to do with how much money you make. And so I need to recognize that last one. Money chokes out the work of God in me. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word. It's the word of God making it unfruitful. That's a temptation for us. We live in an affluent society. There's so many choices and options that are available to us because we have discretionary income. Because all of our money doesn't go to meet our basic needs, we have choices. We have choices between 
beyond basic necessities. And those choices are wonderful in so many ways. And those choices for many of us are a burden. And they wind up, depending on what choices we make, choking out what God wants to do in us. We've talked about this for the past few weeks. I'm going to Nicaragua in a couple of weeks. No kid that I've met in Nicaragua is on a travel sports team. They don't have them at all. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. It's an option that's not available to them because there's no discretionary income in the area where we're going. They're struggling on the other end for sure. It's not romanticizing or idealizing poverty, but it's a recognition that as people who are affluent, living in an affluent county, there are options, many of them, that are available to us. And that can, that, those options can actually, even though they're good, can choke out the word of God. I've talked to people before who they make, there are a few people who make more money than me. Not many, but there are a few. And I talk to them and they say, it doesn't get easier. It doesn't get easier. There are decisions that are in our house we never have to make. We never have to decide if we should send our children to private school. That's not in the cards for us. We never agonize over school choices. Some of you have the option to do things, and so you do agonize over that. It's neither better nor worse. It's just some discretionary income puts that on the table for you. Again, there's activities with your children. There's where do I invest The last time I looked at a stock was when I was in the seventh grade in Mrs. Nance's economics class. I I don't. It's not a thing for me at all. It's not better or worse. That that's not on the table for us right now, which doesn't make me better than anybody. In a sense, it makes me freer. That's nothing that I have to worry about. That some of you have to worry about. What am I going to do with this? God's going to hold me accountable for how I use it. What's the best way? So all of those things, that's, that's wealth creating weeds that can choke out the work of God. I don't want any of you to feel guilty. Not one of you. That's not the Lord. It's the enemy. What I want you to do is we're going to pray. I want you to hear the Lord. If he says you're rich, I want you to own it. Not as a badge of honor, but to recognize. That, make, that opens me up to this whole world of perils. Just like it would if you had high blood pressure. Doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack, but it means you're at risk. So I'm rich. So what does that put me at risk for? And then we're going to ask the Lord to show me specifically. We're not going to do anything today. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than listen to the Lord and try to get some perspective on where you are. The last four weeks, we've hit what I feel like are three of the biggest strongholds in our community. We've talked about this ex- exclusivity piece, the insider-outsider thing with relationships, which is devastating to people in our community. We've talked about the pace that we live at, the fact that nobody, very few people incorporate rest into their regular rhythm. So we're all we're running ragged. And then this whole piece... With money, and all of those things are tied together, and they are not small issues. These are massive things to begin to work through in your heart and in your household to say, what does it look like? Rather than for me to get pulled along the conveyor belt of culture, what does it look like for me to say, hold on, there's a new wineskin for me now. I'm going to begin to live in light of that. Let's pray. Sorry. God, on balance, 
thank you that I'm thanking you that I live in Marietta, Georgia and not Granada, Nicaragua. I thank you that I don't have to worry about whether there's going to be electricity when I flip a switch. I thank you that I don't have to worry about whether there's going to be food in my refrigerator. I thank you that I don't have to worry about whether rain is going to come through my roof. I thank you that we've got cars and we can go places. It's not, I thank, we thank you, God. And I thank you that in your kingdom, you're eradicating poverty. There's no, there's not, the streets are paved with gold in heaven. And so, Lord, I want to romanticize poverty. At the same time, God, we want to recognize the perils of wealth. And so now I pray in each of our hearts, the hearts of every man and woman in this room, I pray you begin to speak to us first, plain and simple. Just ask this in your heart. Am I rich? He may say no. He may say yes. Am I rich? If the answer is yes, you want to hear those woes, not as a curse, but as a warning. God, for those of us who are rich, I pray you begin to reveal to us the places where our hearts are at risk. Show us the soft spots where the enemy can attack, where he can lure us into living independently from you. I don't think anyone in this room makes that choice or those choices intentionally saying, I'm going to do my own thing. It's subtle. Maybe even done with good motives. But the result... Is not good. So show us, Lord, where where are we vulnerable? Trusting in our wealth, our love of wealth, opening us up to all kinds of problems, the options that wealth make available to us, choking out the work in our heart. Maybe something else. Just grab on to whatever you feel like the Lord put in your heart. God, I pray for that, that we would know what to do with that revelation. We want to know how to be faithful to you as sons and daughters. We don't want to just be swept along by the current of our culture. But it's so much easier than trying to swim upstream. So, God, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray for the households represented here. That you would begin to speak to them over the next few days and the next few weeks. The rhythm and the pace of their life. The place of money in their life. The quality of relationships in their life. All of these things in our community that are broken. Where the enemy seems to wreak havoc. For the households represented here, would you begin to do a new thing? Would we not live in the old wineskin of Cobb County, Georgia? God, would we live into the new wineskin of the kingdom of God? 
thank you for Jeff and Sherry and for their testimony of what it looks like to live their life as missionaries. And God, I pray for examples from this congregation. Households in this congregation will begin to live life as missionaries here and the places where you've planted us. I don't want anybody making decisions out of guilt or condemnation. God, my prayer is that each one of us would make decisions as we're led by your spirit in the coming days and weeks. God, I pray for productive conversations around the table as people begin to hash through priorities and values and strongholds and temptations and fruit. God, we want to see you change this community. We know that means there's some things that have to shift in us as well. Think about what Paul said. Live lives worthy of imitation, God. We want our lives to be lived such a quality of joy and peace and generosity and power and love and mercy and grace that other people are drawn to that so show us what that looks like i pray in jesus name amen